Hello, my name is Jake Hardiman. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we will give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, I'll report on the latest with the big news story of the year so far, Alaska Airlines and its door blowout, while Jake sees how EasyJet plans to help those afraid to fly. Joe will fill us in on the Japan Airlines A350 crash in Tokyo, while I look at the huge number of flights connecting London to New York JFK. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And before we begin, I just want to say this is our 200th episode. So I'm really pleased to be doing it with Jake, who is uh, regular on Simple Flying's podcast, although not quite as regular as Tom. But of course, he's doing something incredible in New Zealand for his honeymoon. So uh, we will celebrate in his absence and have a little wee celebration with him when he gets back next week, maybe. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, happy to be here for, uh, for this little milestone. Definitely. I can't believe we've been going that long. Well, on to our first story of the podcast. And uh, this is turning out to be the story of the year. And we're only a couple of weeks into the year, which is crazy. So last Friday, an Alaska Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 9 was taking off from Portland to fly to Ontario in California with 177 passengers on board. The aircraft itself was almost brand new, having been delivered to Alaska Airlines in October last year. As it approached about 16 thousand feet around 10 minutes into the flight a panel rips off causing a rapid decompression and sucking various items out of the plane including a seat headrest somebody's shirt a teddy bear and several mobile phones of course the past the pilots immediately requested a return to portland and managed to make a safe landing alaska airlines said some passengers did require medical attention but were later cleared by medics and did not require hospital stays so It's a miracle that nobody was seriously hurt during the incident. It could have been so, so much worse. And this opens up another can of worms at Boeing's dinner table. In the aftermath of the accident, it became clear that what actually blew out was not a normal panel, but a spare hole for an emergency exit door. Some MAX 9 users, those with higher density cabin configurations, need this exit door to comply with evacuation regulations. Those who have more lightly loaded cabins, such as Alaska Airlines, do not need this door. Therefore, they have a plug installed to turn it into a normal cabin wall. It was this plug that departed the aircraft and left passengers staring out at the starry Portland sky. Alaska Airlines immediately grounded its 65 737 MAX 9 aircraft that have these door plugs to allow for detailed inspections. But the very next day, Saturday, some of those aircraft re-entered service, with Alaska Airlines saying that those had recently undergone maintenance, which included checks of the door plug. However, very shortly after this, the FAA made the decision for them and grounded all the MAX 9s with this configuration until such time as safety checks could be made, a decision that affected 100 177 planes around the world. The impact has disrupted operations at Alaska, which has 65 of the type in service, and particularly United, which has 79. Other affected airlines include Copa, Aeromexico and Turkish Airlines. And the most affected overall are Copa and Alaska, with the door plug MAX 9 making up more than 20% of their overall flight fleet. Hundreds of flights have already been cancelled this week so far. But who's to blame for the accident? Well, 
Boeing has since admitted what it calls a quality escape during safety checks, but hasn't outright said it is at fault. CEO David Calhoun said, what broke down in our gauntlet of inspections? What broke down in the original work that allowed for that escape to happen? Well, fingers have been pointed at Spirit Aerosystems, a Boeing contractor, which is responsible for finishing the fuselages of aircraft like the 737 MAX, including the installation of these door plugs. Spirit has previously had red flags raised over quality control issues, although the final inspection of the component is Boeing's responsibility. Well, let's talk about this door plug. It's a pretty weird thing, but securing it of just four bolts, upper and lower on each side of the door, which prevent it from moving upwards. There are six small brackets on either side of the door frame, 12 altogether, called stop fittings, which line up with 12 similar stop pads on the door plug. When the cabin is pressurised, the stop pads press tightly against all the stop fittings and seal the door plug tight against the fuselage. But of course, you do need to be able to take it out for maintenance, and it is opened by moving the plug upwards so that the pads on the door plug rise above the stop fittings on the out on the door frame that then allows the plug to be moved outwards but the four bolts with those in place the plug can't be moved upwards and the 12 stop fittings will press against the pads and hold it in um, NTSB structures specialist Clint Crookshanks told the Seattle Times the exam today has shown that the door did in fact translate upwards all 12 stops became disengaged allowing it to blow out of the fuselage both the roller tracks on the door plug were found to have fractured and the bolts so far have not been found. Crookshanks commented, we have not yet recovered the four bolts that restrain the door plug from its vertical movement and we have not yet determined if they even existed there. So what he's insinuating is maybe those door plug, the bolts were not fitted and if they were fitted, maybe they were loose and they then subsequently disappeared. Well, anyway... There were obviously subsequent investigations by United and Alaska, and this gave more cause for, for concern because a few days later, United Airlines declared that it also had found loose bolts on the same door plug in its own aircraft. Alaska Airlines said it found loose bolts on some other MAX 9s of its own as well. The FAA has said that it will not allow any of these affected aircraft to return to service until such time as they are certain it is safe. In the latest update issued Tuesday, the FAA said every Boeing 737-9 MAX with a door plug will remain grounded until the FAA finds each can safely return to operation. To begin this process, Boeing must provide instructions to operators for inspections and maintenance. Boeing offered an initial version of instructions yesterday, which they are now revising because of feedback received in response. Upon receiving the revised versions of instructions from Boeing, the FAA will conduct a thorough review. The safety of the public, not speed, will determine the timeline for returning the MAX 9 to service. Of course, the NTSB is involved and they like to check out every part of the plane, not just what's remaining of the fuselage, but also any parts that fell off. So they were very keen to get the door plug back, of course. And it was actually a few days before it was discovered. Eventually, a teacher called Bob, <laughs> we haven't discovered his last name yet, but uh, Bob seems a great name. Um, he phoned it in that he'd found an aircraft door in his backyard. Amazingly, as well as the door, two mobile phones have been recovered um, from the ground that were believed to have fallen from the airplane, including one that was undamaged and still in complete working order. Incredible testament to iPhones there, I reckon. <laughs> there were some ele elements of luck that seemed to be playing in Bo Boeing and Alaska Airlines' favour here. 
Nobody was seated in the row by the door plug. The cover and headrest of some of these seats was sucked out. So you can imagine it could have been quite dangerous if somebody was sitting right by that area where the door plug blew out. Everybody had their seatbelts on as the plane had just taken off. And just to put that kind of um, the, the explosive decompression into context, there was a young chap on the plane, about 12 years old, and his shirt was ripped off his back while he was sitting in his seat with his seatbelt on, which just shows you how forceful this um, decompression was. So, you know, under normal circumstances, if they'd been up at 35,000 feet, there could have been people wandering around the cabin, could have been a lot worse. And talking about altitude, you know, at 16,000 feet, the decompression is a lot more tame than it would have been at 35,000. A blowout at sort of maximum altitude could have been much, much worse. But what also came out in the aftermath was that that particular MAX 9 had, that suffered the incident had had some problems with pressurisation before. It had already been restricted from flying long flights over water uh, due to pilots reporting pressurisation warnings on three previous occasions. Warning lights indicating a loss of cabin pressurisation had occurred on flights of this new MAX 9 on December the 7th and then again on January the 3rd and January the 4th, just two days before the incident. Maintenance had been asked to look at the plane, but this wasn't done before the 5th of January flight. However, NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy said that she didn't believe the issues were linked. She was quoted as saying that at this time, we have no indications whatsoever that this correlated in any way to the expulsion of the door plug and the rapid decompression. So the NTSB is carrying out a full investigation. This will involve examining the plane itself, the lost door, the contents of the flight data recorder and the airline's maintenance record, as well as interviewing crew, flight, mem uh, flight crew, maintenance staff and employees at both Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems. One thing they will not be able to scrutinise, however, is the flight deck voice recorder, as the data was wiped before they could get to it. In the USA, flight deck voice recorders run for around two hours before recording over that data and deleting it forever. So in Europe, this is 24 hours. Um, and there are campaigns ongoing to extend the length of time in the US to prevent this kind of situation. Of course, the investigation is meant to uncover what went wrong, not to apportion blame. And Boeing is insisting it is a different company today from what it is five years ago. But of course, memories of those two deadly Max 8 crashes are still weighing heavily on the minds of investors and flying passengers. Um, I'm really pleased that everybody got off that plane safely. But it is just another kind of nail in Boeing's coffin, if you like, because they really will struggle to get over yet more bad press around the Max series. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not the start of the year that the, they'd have wanted on that front. I mean, last year there were issues away from the max with the, the 787 quality control. And um, <laughs> yeah, now we're back to, I guess, uh, the problem child of the, the Boeing portfolio, if you will. So very, very scary, but certainly elements of luck there that, for example, yeah, no one was sitting right by the affected area. Yeah, it was very, very good luck that it wasn't worse than it was. But I think, you know, it raises more questions than it answers. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this over the coming weeks. So Absolutely. stay tuned. I have to say that if a door blew off a plane that I was flying on, I'd be terrified of flying. Um, but EasyJet are doing something to help people who might be a bit scared to fly, aren't they, Jake? They are. Oh, indeed. Yes. So later this month, we'll see uh, EasyJet resume uh, a course that it runs known as Fearless Flyer, uh, which is aimed at helping those with aerophobia or fears of flying uh, to get over that fear if they are ultimately wanting to travel by air in the future. 
So that's going to be taking place uh, at five of their bases, starting on January the 27th in Manchester. That will be followed by a double header over the weekend of February the 3rd and 4th at London, Luton and Bristol. Then they'll go across to Belfast on February the 11th. I assume Belfast International as they have a base there. And finally, um, after a few weeks off, the fifth date will be at London Gatwick Airport on March the 2nd. Uh, now, obviously, it's um, not the cheapest thing to do, given the resources involved, but um, EasyJet's course is among the, the best value in the UK, uh, starting at £89 per person, which is equivalent to about $113. US um, And I think, yeah, most of the people that have done it will say that it's good value as the carrier claims to have had a 95% success rate with the course. And this is across almost 12,000 participants since the program began in 2012. So it's definitely uh, something that EasyJet is looking to tackle head on and by all accounts is doing very well with. Last April was a particular milestone for the course when the 150th iteration of it went on sale. Um, I mean, I would imagine that there would have been a bit of a, a pause for COVID, but either way, that's a hell of a lot of courses in a decade or so. As terms of the course itself, it's split into three parts, um, and it starts, as all flights do, on the ground, uh, in this case with a two-and-a-half-hour virtual course. Uh, this is led by a phobia expert called Lawrence Layton, as well as a senior EasyJet captain. Uh, and in this part of the course, the pair talk passengers through the various sensations of flying that they might not be used to if they've never or rarely flown, uh, and how they might cope with those if uh, they cause them discomfort in flight. This is then followed up uh, by a one-hour-long Zoom call that explains uh, the pre-flight airport experience. Um, of course, this isn't um, necessarily uh, a scary experience, or at least as scary as flying oh, I don't many know. people. Depends but, uh, which airport you're flying from, I well, think. Well, that is true. <laughs> but I guess more than anything, it's, it's an unfamiliar environment for rare flyers or those who've never flown. So I guess it's a case of getting them used to that so that then they are in a, as good a state as possible before the actual flight itself. Um, and that, uh, that session also gives participants the chance to have a, a question and answer session uh, once again with Lawrence Layton and uh, the EasyJet captain in case they have any individual queries that come up. Um, now, of course, um, getting to know what it's like to fly, coping mechanisms and so on is one thing, but then putting them into action, I guess, is where the, um, the course really shows its worth. Uh, and that is what the final stage is all about. So. EasyJet um, yeah, sends participants on a, a one-hour-long uh, round-trip flight from their chosen airport. Um, and this, uh, this yeah, gives them an opportunity to um, experience flying in real life um, with uh, the added bonus of um, commentary from the team that run it, um, I guess, to keep uh, passengers up to date with everything that's going on and uh, to make sure that they're okay with it. Um, yeah, so as I said, it starts at £89 per person, but the session at London Gatwick Airport also has a VIP option, um, which uh, is yeah, exciting, but also that's reflective of the uh, the low-cost model and its reliance on ancillaries. <laughs> um, Even the so, training course has an ancillary yeah. revenue. <laughs> so that, that is, um, it's considerably more expensive at uh, £497 or $634 US per person, uh, but you do get quite a few extra perks for that. Um, so it's limited to up to five people per course. Uh, and this VIP group gets their own dedicated captain for the day um, who yeah, takes them through the entire day and is a, a constant point of contact, I suppose. Um, before the flight, the um, VIP participants also have the chance to have a, uh, a video call with the team. Um, I guess, again, to bring up any questions that happen 
closer to the flight. And then at the airport itself, the uh, the group gets the VIP experience as far as check-in security and priority boarding is concerned. These passengers uh, are also given access to uh, seating at the front of the aircraft, as well as lifetime access to extra course materials afterwards if there's yeah, anything they want to return to, if uh, then having done the course, they feel ready to fly themselves to see friends or family or go on holiday. Um, but just to have those uh, extra materials to hand to remind themselves of coping mechanisms and so on is always useful. Um, so yeah, I guess especially in a, a time where there have been a couple of alarming incidents recently, it's um, maybe a time when yeah, people's fear of flying is coming to head a bit more, but EasyJet certainly seems to be tackling that pretty well head on. That's great. I mean, maybe head on is not the best well, no. <laughs> analogy for that, Jake. Tackling it directly as you are. <laughs> I, I've never been afraid of flying. I mean, I've found some parts unnerving. And I think before I knew more about aviation, silly things like, you know, where the Airbuses make the barking dog noise because of the hydraulics. Well, you know, that used to worry me when we're coming into land and it's making a weird noise or we're taking off anyway. Um, it's good to know that somebody's tackling that because everyone deserves to enjoy flying. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about, well, in fact, I wish I had better news for my second segment, but unfortunately it is another incident. Um, and it seems like a lifetime ago, having, you know, been through all the Alaska Airlines ups and downs over the last week. Um, but it was only at the start of this year and we haven't recorded a news podcast since then because uh, we did our big wrap up roundup last last week. Um, but anyway, this one involves the Japan Airlines A350-900s um, and it was flying between Sapporo and Tokyo's Haneda Airport. Um, and it often uses the A350-900 for these high demand regional routes, which is kind of interesting. It just shows the massive demand for these um, essentially domestic flights. Um, very different to the A350-1000, which I went to see at Toulouse just before Christmas, which will be used for international. Anyway, by the point, the uh, aircraft flying was JA-13XJ and was just over two years old. It was cleared to land and touched down safely on the runway, but immediately collided with a Japanese Coast Guard Dash 8 that was also occupying the runway. The collision caused a massive fireball with the plane seen rolling down the runway in flames. It managed to stop. Uh, it came to a stop on the grass at the side of the runway. And within about three minutes, there were 70 fire engines on the scene. Um, it re really was very quickly engulfed in flames. And the footage from the incident are absolutely shocking. Um, but Amazingly, all 367 passengers and 12 crew members on the JAL flight were evacuated safely. Sadly, five of the six crew members on the Dash 8 did not survive. Um, the safe evacuation of the aircraft has been talked about a lot in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I fully think it's a testament to amazing Japanese safety culture and the selflessness of Japanese people. I mean, it was funny, when we were touring the A350-1000, it was noted that um, premium economy seats, which have a, a good sort of five inches recline, they have a fixed shell behind them. So you recline in your own space. And this is very against the trend that we've seen in other aircraft, you know, where they've got the big recline actually in the seat back. And we asked the designer about it and he said it's because Japanese people are too polite and they would rather not recline at all than recline and upset the person behind them. So, you know, the Japanese are a very selfless people. And if you look at the videos from the scene of the A350 crash, you can see people evacuating and they 
they've got no suitcases, no hand luggage. Um, the people inside the cabin, there's a few videos from there as well. You can see that even though it was filling with smoke, everyone stayed in their seats until told to move by the crew. So it was a very well orchestrated, well, um, nice compliant evacuation and it meant everyone survived. It could have been a very different outcome. I mean, if you'd cast your mind back to the Aeroflot crash in 2019, um, which was an SSJ-100, the, the plane had experienced a lightning strike and then landed very hard at Moscow, um, which caused a fire to break out and ultimately saw 41 of the 73 passengers losing their lives. And footage from that incident clearly showed people leaving the cabin with suitcases in hand. So it was an amazing job by the cabin crew getting everyone else out safely. And from an Avgeek point of view, it was incredible to see how well the composites stand up to intense fire. I mean, of course, all these planes have been tested and the materials are tested, but this is the first kind of real world example of a composite aircraft burning. Um, so I think, you know, what will come out of it is all sorts of interesting research. Um, so the A350 is 53% composites. Um, the fuselage is pretty much all composite and parts of its tail wings and nose are made from the material too. On paper, at least, composites should be able to withstand temperatures around six times higher than those of aluminium. Of course, it's a bit too early to draw any conclusions at this point, but it'll be interesting to see how investigations play out and what research data we can get from this. Um, from the initial footage, it appears the structure held up very well. You know, you can kind of see it burning, but staying in its shape, which obviously gave the passengers a bit more time to escape. Of course, a lot of the investigation will be looking at who is at fault. Um, initial findings suggest the JAL A350 was indeed cleared to land, while the Coast Guard Dash 8 was not cleared to enter the runway. There were some lights between the taxiway and the runway that indicate the aircraft should stop, but those were dysfunctional at the time. Obviously, that could have been a contributing factor. Added to this, the Dash 8 didn't have an ADSB transponder, which would have or could have indicated its position to the JAL pilots. Um, and there have been concerns raised over overworked air traffic controllers and, you know, people potentially being more focused on assisting other aircraft and not noticing where the Japanese Coast Guard plane had gone. We've seen loads of near misses over the last year or two. Um, and I think, you know, this recurring issue of ATC being understaffed and overworked will come to a head and there will be changes made. Um, but at the moment, obviously, investigations are ongoing. It's not our place to point fingers or name names. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think at a minimum, we'll probably see um, Japanese uh, civil aviation using uh, transponders in more aircraft going forward. But we'll have to wait and see. We will indeed, yes. I mean, I was actually um, flying home from a, a New Year's holiday the day after that crash. And the um, the pilot said um, just before the safety demonstration that we'll have seen the news out of Japan. And that's, um, yeah, all the, all the more reason to pay proper attention to the safety demonstration. And I guess that's maybe not the sort of thing that people want to hear just before flying. But I think <laughs> it certainly is an incident that, yeah, rammed home the um, the importance of following the uh, instructions and paying attention to the safety notices. Definitely. I mean, I always make a point of making eye contact with the flight attendant and really listening, even though I've heard it a million times before, because I feel like they're putting their all into doing a demonstration and we should give them that, you know, it's only three or four minutes of your life. But you see so many people, they've already got their headphones in, they're looking at their phones, they're reading a book. Um, and these things are what saves lives. Um, but anyway, I'll let Jake finish off with something a bit more cheerful because we seem to have had... <laughs> 
a bit of a depressing podcast so far. Um, Jake, tell me about the London to JFK flight route and how many airlines we've got now on that particular high high capacity route. Indeed, yes, better better news to end for sure. Um, now, obviously, yeah, the the transatlantic corridor from London to New York has always been not only a busy one, but one that yes, the um, I guess most prestigious aircraft have been seen on. I mean, in years gone by, it was Concorde and the Boeing seven four seven, and uh, sadly those are all gone. But uh, what's uh, not gone is the um, the number of flights um, on that corridor. So of course, uh, New York JFK is the the focal point of this corridor at the U.S. end. And this summer is going to see a record 28 daily westbound uh, departures from London to JFK spread across uh, Gatwick and Heathrow. Uh, So Gatwick itself um, has just five of these, but this is still a a record uh, for Gatwick to have five JFK-bound departures a day. Uh, This is up from four, uh, thanks to the addition of a second service from North Atlantic Airways. Uh, The other three are one each from British Airways, Delta and JetBlue. Um, and yes, although the, the five pales in comparison to the remaining 23 at London Heathrow, it's still um, very impressive when you consider that, um, according to research by James, our wonderful route development analyst, that there were no Gatwick to JFK flights between 2010 and 2013. So uh, what, a, what a difference a decade or so makes there. As far as the, um, the 23 daily flights from Heathrow to JFK this summer are concerned, uh, British Airways, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, is the dominant force there, accounting for eight of them. Virgin Atlantic is just one behind uh, with seven, followed by American Airlines with four, and Delta and JetBlue with two apiece. Um, now, obviously, that represents a very heavy presence from One World and Sky Team members. Um, and you yeah, might be wondering where Star Alliance are in all of that. But of course, um, they, on the London New York route, at least serve uh, Newark, uh, just uh, just across from JFK with United Airlines. Um, so Alliance carriers account for 82% of that market, with um, JetBlue and North being the only exceptions. Um, and as far as yeah, these 28 daily flights are concerned, there's incredible variety, not just in terms of the airlines, but also the times of day that the flights operate and the aircraft that operate them. So uh, yeah, looking at a a snapshot of June the 1st that um, James brought up for us, um, we can see that the 28 departures are spread across more than 12 hours, with the first being at 20 past 8 in the morning with Virgin Atlantic from London Heathrow, and the last being at uh, 20 to 9 in the evening with North Atlantic out of Gatwick. So yeah, if if you're an early riser or someone that likes to a bit of a lie-in before traveling. There's um, definitely something for everyone there. And um, yes, as far as the aircraft types that are concerned um, on this corridor, there's also a lot of variety there. The Airbus um, has both narrow-body and wide-body representation, but with JetBlue flying the A321LR uh, transatlantic. And then it's wide, the wide bodies from Airbus uh, on the London to JFK corridor this summer are the Airbus A330-300 uh, and Neo series, as well as the A350-1000. There's a similar level of variety on the Boeing side, admittedly with no narrow bodies present. Um, but yeah, the wide bodies there are two different types of the 767, namely the 300ER and the 400ER. Um, both of those obviously becoming increasingly rare, so nice to know that you can still catch those on uh, a corridor like this. Um, then two varieties of the 777 as well, the 200ER and the 300ER. And then finally, um, the Dreamliner is represented by the mid-sized 787-9 variant uh, with North Atlantic. Um, so yes, it's not 
a corridor that I've ever flown on, but good to know that if I was to do so, I'd have all manner of variety to choose from in, in most respects. I think last time I flew that corridor, it was uh, Virgin Atlantic's inaugural with the A350-1000. And uh, yeah, it's just insane, you know, that a route can support that many airlines and that much variety. And yet it's still profitable for everybody to run that route. You know, it's crazy. I mean, I think we ran something a few years ago um, noting that it was the most valuable route in the world and it was, you know, worth over a billion dollars or something. But I think these days it's worth even more. And um, yeah, when are they going to build a bridge across the Atlantic is what I (laughs) want to know so we can just walk. (laughs) Yeah, no, it'll definitely be interesting to see how sustainable that volume of flights is. I mean, you wonder to what extent that the market may cannibalize itself. I mean, I guess the the big question is around North Atlantic's second daily Gatwick flights because they've been removing departures from other routes. So clearly they think that Gatwick to JFK is the, the basket in which to put their eggs. But with uh, with competition at Gatwick from BA, Delta and JetBlue, that will remain to be seen. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks, Jake, for that. That was so interesting. Um, but I think that's about all we've got time for on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And as usual, welcome any feedback you had for us at editorial at simpleflying for more great content you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media simply search for simple flying if you enjoyed the podcast please do leave us a rating on your favorite podcast player and thanks for listening 